Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning and open to the book of Exodus, chapter 23. In a moment, I'll read verses 10 through 19. What a beautiful thing it is that God's word is sufficient for life and godliness. There's no other thing that we need to turn to, no other thing that we need to go to. But God's word. Do you see God's word as sufficient for your life? Like if I were to ask you, what is it that you need? You would say, I need God's word. It is so sufficient and so great. And it is everything that I need to understand who God is, to understand who I am, to understand what God has done to redeem me through his son, Jesus Christ, that you would say, I can't do without God's word. It's something that's so necessary, so vital to our lives, that we would say, we can't go on without God's word. And that would inform who we are, would inform what we do. In fact, I I hope that's why you are here today. Because you would say, God's word is so vital to my life, so sufficient, I need it today. I cannot go on without it. I need to hear it. I need to be bathed in it. I need it to be the lifeblood that's flowing through my veins so that when everything in this world, or when Satan himself, or when even our own flesh would try to cut us, that our blood would be a bibline blood, that it, we, would, we would bleed the Bible. Is that the blood that's flowing through your veins? Your lifeblood, your everything. All that you need. So let's go to it. Would you stand with me as I read out of reverence and respect for God's word? Exodus 23, verses 10 through 19. As we continue to make our way through the book of Exodus... Verse by verse, 
sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, we find God's sufficiency in his word in these verses. And so it's by no accident we are in them today. Exodus 23, verse 10 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your, maid, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days, at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. Let's pray. Father, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Otherwise, we have no idea where we're going. It is the only sufficient guide. And so let your light shine into our lives, into our hearts this morning to expose the darkness. And may the darkness flee away. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. What is it that orders your life? What is it that causes you to do what you do? Why do you do? what you do? Is there something in your life that provides structure and meaning and value? What is it that orders your life? Maybe if I were to put it another way this morning, what is it that makes you get out of bed in the morning? Your job? Your kids? What is it that orders what you do in your life. 
And I wonder if any of us answering that question would honestly say, it's God who orders my life. It's God who gives the structure to my life. It's God who causes me to get out of bed in the morning and do what I do in my life each and every day. How many of us, though, our lives are ordered by the tyranny of the urgent? Is that what it is for you? The tyranny of the urgent. You think of all those things that need to be done right now. They're urgent in your life. You have to do them. You have to take care of them. You're beholden to it. You're bound to it. It is your duty not only to do it, but to do it now. There is always something that's nagging us. Always something that is urgent. Always something that cannot wait. And go, so we go from one urgent thing to the next. We are constantly yanked around like a toddler holding the leash of a Rottweiler when the tyranny of the urgent presses upon us there is no order there is no structure it's chaos and we're just trying to hold on we're flying by the seat of our pants we're hoping that we can make it through this day and hope that tomorrow is better than today. But in our heart of hearts, we know tomorrow is probably just going to be like today. <laughs> what is it that is pressing upon you? What is it that's causing pressure in your life? Have you ever felt like that? Like, like a pressure cooker, right? Where you, where you put the food in it, and I don't even know how it works, you put the food in it, and you close the lid, you clamp it on there, and you, you turn on the heat, and all this heat creates pressure, and it, it cooks the food. And some of us have been cooking for a long time. And the pressure mounts and mounts and mounts and mounts and mounts in your life and in my life until it feels like we're going to explode. no way to live, is it? I mean, do you want to live that way? Do I want to live that way? No, I want some relief. One of our pots, there's this little hole in the top of the lid, and I assume that hole is there to let out some of the pressure. And sometimes maybe we feel that's our life. There's just this little tiny hole that somehow some of the pressure is being relieved so we don't explode. We wish, we wish there was a gaping hole in that lid to let out all of the pressure. What is it? What is it that's causing the chaos, that's causing the pressure? What is the tyranny of the urgent that's making you so busy in your life and making you so busy with all of the wrong things? How many things in your life that's 
that you would say, yeah, this is it. This is what's causing the pressure. How many of those things, when you think about it, in the grand scheme of the world and of the universe and God who created everything, when you put it in that perspective, you would say, what is this? What is this little thing? Why is it causing so much turmoil in my heart? Why am I worrying about it? Why do I feel like it's pressing down upon me, crushing me? And here's the problem. We think about all of the things, the tyranny of the urgent, the things that are not really that important that are pressing upon us. And so often we can think, Man, it's everything out there. If everything out there was just better, if everything out there would just get in order, if all of the circumstances in my life would just fall into place and be what I actually want, then I would find some relief. Then I would feel good. But that's not where all the pressure's coming from. If you're waiting for everything out there to fall into place and be exactly what you want it to be? According to this world standard, you're going to be waiting for a long time. <laughs> but where is all the pressure coming from? It's coming from in here. All those things are only revealing what's inside your heart. What you love, what you cherish, what you fear. It's not all the stuff out there. It's all the stuff in here. So, if our lives are going to be ordered in a way that God wants, in a way that God has designed, it starts with having an ordered in here. And there's good news for you today. God can order your heart. In fact, newsflash, God can order your heart better than you can order your heart. <laughs> you think, I need to get my heart in line, I need to fix up my heart, I need to, to, to do some heart surgery in myself right now? Well, Here's the good news, dear brother and sister. God can do that work in your heart to order it the way that he wants it to be ordered. And that's what he does with the Israelites. That's why he's writing to them or, or speaking to them here at Mount Sinai. From Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, through the end of 23, this is what we call the book of the covenant. It's God speaking directly to the Israelites through Moses, saying, this is what I want your life to look like. And so let's think about that. This is called the book of the covenant. A covenant is showing that this is a relationship between God and his people. He's saying, this is how I want our relationship, what I want our relationship to look like, and this is also what I want your relationship with one another to look like, and this is what I want your relationship with the world to look like. And so the book of the covenant is a relational book. It's all about relationships, all based first and foremost on their relationship with God. 
And it comes back to that here at the end now. As we are reaching the end of the book of the covenant, we see a climax towards the Israelites' relationship with God. And so Yahweh takes this section of Scripture and He uses it to order people's lives. He gives them structure. And all of it, all of it is focused on Him. How much of the ordering and the structure of our life would fall into place if we were more God-focused? What's the problem? All of the other distractions that just get in the way. This covenant God is giving to them, the Lord is going to put His people on display as those who are His treasured possession, as those who are a kingdom of priests, and those who are a holy nation. And this order, this structure, is specifically dependent and determined by what the Lord gives to His people. So in this section, the Lord is highlighting everything that He provides. And it's what the Lord provides that gives order and structure to their lives. Do you ever think about that? That it might be what the Lord has given to you that actually He is using to order and structure your life in the way that he wants it ordered and structured. Notice, it's what he gives. It's not what you attain. It's not what you take for yourself. God is ordering and structuring our lives based upon what he gives to us. And what he gives to us shows his faithfulness, gives us a sense of security. He doesn't say, figure out what you're supposed to do on your own. He says, look at what I've given to you so that your life may have order and structure. I've given you security. I've given something that you can hold on to. And knowing what I've given to you, you will be able to live your life in a way that's ordered rightly. The ordering of life for the people of God is based on what the Lord has provided and knowing that He will continue to provide. Do you ever struggle with that? Do you ever say, Lord, I know that you have provided in the past, but I don't know if you're going to provide in the future. Is that ever a concern? We can look back and we can say, he's been faithful here and here and here and here. When we look to the future, God, I don't know if you're going to provide again. God is always faithful. His faithfulness of the past is the assurance that our hearts need that He will provide in the future as well. And so let us never doubt, let us never question. What we see here in these verses revolves around who God is as the great provider and what He has done in providing exactly what the people need. Is God your provider? 
Have you seen his provision in your life? And does his provision cause your heart to be thankful? To say, Lord, thank you for all that you've given to me. Thank you for how you've provided for me. In fact, I wonder if it's right there as we look back at all that he's forgiven and maybe have the propensity to worry about him providing in the future that we here in the present say, I'm thankful now. I'm thankful for who God is. I'm thankful for what he has done. He is the provider. And how then are we to respond to his provision as we are thankful? As we look at these verses we might think, well, yeah, this is how the Lord is providing for the Israelites, but, but what about us? This is important. God's provision hasn't changed. God doesn't change. His provision hasn't changed. If anything, it's a provision that is more clear to us now with the coming of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. God's shown His provision is even greater now through Jesus Christ. But there's much that we can still learn from these verses about His provision. So let's look at that this morning. Number one in our outline, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. Number one, trust in God's provision of rest. Trust in God's provision of rest. Have you ever seen someone who needs rest? You look at them and you think, you just need a good nap. You'll be better. A mom who has been caring for her children nonstop, who has hardly got a good night's sleep, who has never been able to have a moment's peace. Even when she's in the bathroom, there are little hands pounding on the door. Maybe it's someone who's been working overtime. Hour after hour, they wake up, they work, they eat, they work some more, and they sleep, and they do it all again day after day after day. You can notice when people are run down. You can see it on their face. You can hear it in their long sighs. And you say to yourself, they need to get some rest. Maybe you're someone who feels like you need rest. The good news today is that our God is a God of rest. He designed rest. He built it into the very fabric of creation. In the very beginning, he created everything in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And it wasn't because he was tired. God doesn't get tired, but he rested because he had finished the work of creation. So to rest is to imitate God. God rested so his people should rest. And when we don't rest, we are actually lying about who God is. So God orders the life of his people so there is rest built in. And he begins here with the agriculture of the land. Israel was an agrarian society. Their lives were dependent 
upon what happened in the field. So six years they were to sow the land and gather whatever they produced. This is ordinary farming. But the seventh year was to be a Sabbath year, and so they were let to let the land rest. They were not to cultivate it. They were to let it lie fallow, as it says. Now, there is some debate among scholars as to if all farmers did this at exactly the same time with all of their fields. So was there a scheduled Sabbath year where they all let their fields rest the same year? Or was there some kind of rotation? Where some years there were fields that were resting, some years there were fields that were not resting. If you go to Leviticus 25, it seems like perhaps they were all resting the same year. But wherever we fall down, the bottom line is, whatever the case, it meant the people had to trust the Lord to provide. The people had to believe that the Lord would take care of them. If they were letting your, if you're letting your field lie fallow and rest, you are not being productive as you could be. There is food that you are not putting on your own table. This even could have political ramifications. If you have a nation that's letting all of their land lie fallow and they're not cultivating their fields, maybe they're weaker, maybe they're sicklier, easy pickings for the surrounding nations. And so the Israelites would have to trust the Lord to care for them and to provide for them even when they let the land rest. And notice why the farmers were supposed to do this, that the poor of your people may eat. The wild beasts would also eat what was left over. And this rule extended to their vineyards and to their orchards as well. Yahweh goes on to give further instructions about the Sabbath day. Already we've talked about this with the fourth commandment out of the Ten Commandments, here a further explanation of what this Sabbath entailed. For six days, they were to work, and then the seventh day, they were to rest. And notice it's rest for the beasts of burden. Notice that it's rest for the servants. Notice that it's rest for the alien or the foreigner or the sojourner in their land. And what's the reason for all of this? You see it here, don't you? the very end of verse 12, that they may be refreshed. That word refreshed could also be translated as breath. So we could say God provided rest so they could catch their breath or so they could take a breather. Do you ever see your need to be refreshed, catch your breath, take a breather? These are all good things. These are all God things. But let us not merely stop with the physical. We could look at these verses and we could say, isn't God a great humanitarian? Does God provide for the welfare of his people? Yes, he does, and we see that here, him providing even for the poor of the land. But why does God provide for the poor? Why does God take care of the poor? Why does God take care of his people, giving them rest? 
all of these physical things that they were to do are supposed to point to a greater spiritual reality. God cares for the poor, but how much more does he care for the poor in spirit? How much more is he concerned for those who realize that in and of themselves they have no spiritual life, they have no spiritual vitality, they are spiritually bankrupt, they have nothing in them that would commend them to God, they are completely dependent upon him to provide spiritual life. And this is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. The Lord provides for the poor in spirit with the gift of the kingdom of heaven. When you have nothing, no field, no land, no home, no food, no security, I will give you the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it the same with the servant or the sojourner? God gives the rest. God gives the refreshment. God causes you to catch your breath, but there is a greater refreshment than physical refreshment. It is the refreshing of your soul. Rest for your soul. And maybe, maybe that's what you need today. Refreshment, resting, for your soul. Is your soul heavy laden by the burden of your guilt and sin? Are you striving to work your way towards God to find some favor with Him and so purchase your own salvation? Are you looking for some rest for your soul but all you find is more and more turmoil and discontentment and unrest? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. See this. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's in Jesus that we find the ultimate Sabbath rest. It's in Jesus that we find the ultimate peace. And do you see what it says there? You will find rest for what? For your souls. In Jesus, we have a gentle and lowly Savior who will care for us and who will give us rest. Why does Jesus give us rest? Who is it that gives rest? It's God. Why does Jesus give us rest? Because Jesus is God. So do you need to be refreshed this morning? Come to Jesus. Are you weary and heavy laden by your sin, by your burden of guilt? Come to Jesus. Are you pressed down, pressed in on every side 
You don't know where to turn. Come to Jesus. Are you fretful and worrying? Are you carrying the burdens of life? Come to Jesus. Are you afraid that you don't know what's going to happen next? Come to Jesus. Receiving this kind of rest from Jesus, we know that he will give the refreshment that we need. Turn your Bibles over a few more books to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that what? That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Maybe that's where the refreshing starts for you today. Where, where, do, where does Acts 3 say this refreshing starts? It starts with this repentance. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, so that what? Here's the purpose statement. Here's the reason why we would want to repent so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice that when we repent, when we come to the Lord, and when we say, Lord, I'm laying all of my sins at your feet. I do not want them. I want to forsake them. I want to experience as godly sorrow because of my sin. When we come and when we repent of our sins, that does not lead us away from the Lord. That does not make God distant from us. Rather, that brings us into the very presence of God, and so then we know the refreshing that comes from Him. Why? Because it's there that we receive forgiveness. It's there that all the burdens that are upon our backs flee away. It's there that we are washed by the blood of the Lamb. It's there then that we can look forward to a day when Christ will return and make everything right. That's where the refreshment comes from. Are those the times of refreshing that you need in your life? Maybe it starts today for you with repentance. Cast every sin that you would cling to and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Number two. Submit to God's provision of his word. Submit to God's provision of his word. First, we are to trust God's provision of rest. Second, we are to submit to God's provision of his word. In this section of text, there are five various paragraphs in the original. And this next section is the third paragraph, or it's the middle paragraph. And the way that oftentimes things were written, you would put the most important thing in the middle. 
So the climax would come in the middle. And so I believe this verse, verse 13, is in the middle and serves as the climax for everything else. And I think even we can see it just from reading the text. What are the first words there? Pay attention. Or watch yourselves. This is said in order to command us to obey, to keep, to submit to what God has said. God is communicating to them through His Word. His Word is truth. His Word is powerful. His Word demands obedience. His Word cannot be silenced. And His Word cannot be dismissed or ignored. And so now the Lord comes to them and says, I've provided you, I've given you my word. Pay attention to it. Don't ignore it. Don't think that somehow you can get around it, submit to it, obey it. And why? Because this is where you show your devotion to God. This is where you show your allegiance to Him. God's word is the authority that we submit to. So, when God speaks in His Word, we put ourselves underneath that Word to do what He says. And God's Word is not an all-you-can-eat buffet. Where we say, I want a little bit of this, I want a little bit of that, but I don't like that, I don't like this. When God's word commands our allegiance and our devotion and our obedience, it's to everything in his word. And then look at what he says. And make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Why does God give this warning? Because this is what happens when someone is discontent with God. When they would say, I don't know if God is enough. Maybe God hasn't provided everything that I need. Maybe God is stingy. Maybe God is holding something back from me. Maybe God really isn't good. And when this happens, what do you have to do? You have to hedge your bets. Maybe I need something more than just God. This played out in a very tangible way for the Israelites throughout their history. There was this other God, lowercase g, man had devised, a pagan God named Baal. Baal was set up by man to be the God of rain and storms. And what happens when you're a farmer? You need rain to cause your crops to grow. And so, if you are in a season of drought, if you're in a season of there's no rain, maybe you'd be tempted to say, well, we trust God, Yahweh, but let's just hedge our bets just in case. <laughs> maybe we can have Yahweh and Baal. And so they would put another name of God on their lips. They would call out to Baal. In fact, that's 
Elijah's big battle, isn't it? The prophets of Baal and Elijah. Guess what? There's a drought. And let's see which God's going to answer in this drought. You call out to your God, and I will call out to my God. And he says to the Israelites, Elijah does, in that he says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? And I wonder if we're ever tempted to do that, limp between two opinions. Yes, we know God, but maybe we need to hedge our bets a little bit. And so the Lord says to us very clearly, very plainly, do not call out to these other gods. Why? Because when you call out to the other gods, by name, you are committing yourself to worship and obey them. That's why they weren't to put these gods on their lips. Because when they were speaking in the names of these gods, it was committing them to worship these gods. It was committing them to, to be obedient to these gods. When you put the name of God on your lips, you're aligning yourself with all of the exercises of religion associated with that God. And so why is it so crucial now for us, dear Christian, dear believer, to hear these words from Romans 10? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who does what? Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how salvation comes. When you put the name of the Lord on your lips, the name of the only Lord, the name of the one Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When his name is on our lips, what are we saying? All of our allegiance, all of our devotion is to him and to him alone and no other God. And then, what does Paul say? A few verses later, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I love that. Why do I love that? Remember idols? Remember gods that man makes? They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have noses but they have no sense of smell. They have mouths but they do not, what? Speak. How is it that we can have the name of the Lord Jesus Christ upon our lips to confess him? Because we have first heard something from God. We have heard the word of Christ. God has spoken in his word. And we have heard, and he's done this work in our hearts so that we have believed and can confess with our mouths so that his name can be upon our lips we confess him to the glory of God the Father. And so we submit to God's word. Number three, finally. Living God's provision of his presence. Living God's provision of his presence. Live in God's provision of his presence. 
We've been talking about how Yahweh is ordering the lives of the Israelites around himself. And so this even goes to the calendar year for the Israelites. Three times a year, they are to come and they are to appear before Yahweh. Three times a year, they're to come and really literally what it's saying here is they're to come into the presence of God. And so there are three feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread usually happens in April or so, associated with the Feast of Passover as well. When they're to come and they're to eat unleavened bread, reminding them of their exodus from Egypt, how they made haste to leave Egypt. They couldn't even wait for their bread to rise. And so they were to remember that, how the Lord provided. That was the month of Aviv. There was also this feast of harvest. Would come at late May, early June. Later it would become known as the Feast of Pentecost. About 50 days or so at the end of the Passover. And they were to bring the first fruits, the first fruits of the grain harvest to the Lord. In fact, later on it says they were to bring the best of their first fruits to Him in sacrifice and worship. And then finally, this last feast, the feast of ingathering, would happen at the end of their harvest calendar year, at the month of September or so, would become associated with what's also known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a reminder of how the Lord had provided for them the whole year. So everything the Lord had provided them, from the, from the grain to the orchards to the vineyards, everything how God had provided for them through that year and given them food to eat. And notice in a smack dab in the middle there what it says. This is the end of verse 19. None shall appear before me or in the presence of Yahweh. None shall appear in the presence of Yahweh empty-handed. So three times a year... Wherever they are in the land, they are to make a pilgrimage to where God is. So either the tabernacle or the temple, where God's presence resided. But when they came to the Lord, they were not to come empty-handed. Why? Because that was lying about who God was. When you come into the presence of the Lord, you come offering what God had given to you. To come with empty hands was to lie about God and say, God hasn't provided anything for me. God hasn't given me anything. That's why you come bringing your sacrifices and your tithes and your offering because you're showing, this is what the Lord has given to me. This is how much He has provided for me. This is why I want to give. This is why I love to give because it's telling the truth about who God is. God is the great provider. Coming empty-handed is to say, God doesn't really provide God doesn't really give. God really hasn't given me anything. And the more we realize how much the Lord has given on us, or given to us, how much He has lavished His grace upon us, the more we want to give. And look at what it says here in verse 17. Three times in the year shall your, all your males appear before the Lord your God. Why does it say this? Well, it's not saying that women can't come. Many times women would come on these pilgrim, pilgrim feasts. They would travel with their families. In fact, you can think about Hannah as an example of that. But perhaps sometimes if a woman was pregnant or had small children, 
make the journey to Jerusalem difficult. But the males had to appear. These were the ones who were supposed to be also leading their families to the Lord. How can you lead your family to the Lord without ever being in his presence? You can't. And so as these heads of these households were supposed to be leading their families to God, they would come into the very presence of the Lord, offer their sacrifices, offer their tithes, offer their offerings to him. They were to draw near to God because God was not a distant God. God was a close and personal and loving God. And then we come to the very end, don't we? These last few verses, I think these last few verses, verses 18 and 19 in particular, are going back to these feasts again. So verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. I think those sacrifices are referring back to the feast of unleavened bread. The next sentence, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So there, again, it's referring back to this feast of the harvest. And then this final sentence, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, refers to the feast of ingathering, that third feast. And it's right there I want to focus just as we close because it may seem kind of weird to us. Why does Jesus say that, or why does God say that at the end here? Don't boil a young goat or a kid in its mother's milk. What does that have to do with us? Anyone have a young goat on the stove for after church today? break it down. Milk, this mother's milk, was something that was supposed to provide life, was supposed to sustain and nurture this young goat, which was supposed to show its care and concern and love. And it was an abomination to take that milk and to use it as an instrument of death. To kill that young goat. And I think it goes with the feast of ingathering in this way. In all that the Lord has provided for you, He has provided that for you to give you life. Do not overindulge and cause harm and hurt and destruction to that life by what God has given to you. It is a promiscuous thing to join life and death together. What does it have to do with us? We're people of life, aren't we? God has given us life through his son, Jesus Christ. We have his life running through our veins. Would we ever join his life to death? Would we ever join his life to something that destroys? Would we ever join his life to something that causes harm and destruction? No, no, no. May it never 
B, God has provided us life. Let us never join this to anything that causes and brings about death. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus says, John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We are people of life, and let us never join ourselves or our church to anything that would promote death, that would bring destruction and harm. And what I love about these verses is that God is calling his people together for corporate worship, that this is how it's to be expressed. Everyone is to get together three times a year for this kind of corporate worship. And this need for corporate worship is the full biblical expression of worship that we were designed for. We were designed to express our life and the life that God has given to us in corporate worship. Now, some might say, well, I can worship God by myself, can't I? Don't we worship God Monday through Saturday on our own? Yes, there are ways that you can draw near to God in worship on your own, but that is not the final design that God has given to us. Why do I say that? What happens in heaven? Heaven is not filled up with individual quiet times. Heaven is filled up with all of God's people worshiping God together forever. That is the full biblical expression of worship. It is corporate worship. It is God's people getting together and say, this is where our life is. It is in Jesus Christ and it is in life together that he has given to us. And so let us Let us live in God's presence that he has provided and proclaim that life to a dying world. Let's pray. Father, may your word have its perfect work in us today. And may we never join join ourselves to anything that would promote death, but only that which would promote life And may the world see that we have everlasting, eternal life. That is the life that we've been given from our Savior. That is the life that we know. That is the life that we rejoice in with one another. Father, and if there's anyone here today who does not know this everlasting, eternal life, may they come to Jesus today. May they repent of their sin today. May they put their faith and trust in him and in him alone today. May they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and so know the certainty of salvation. And may Jesus be the assurance in our lives that when the pressures of life mount, winds of doubt blow through us 
that we know him to be the sure and steady anchor of our soul. The anchor that will never be removed. In his name we pray. Amen.